Welcome to another episode of When Fear Reigns. We're so glad that you've tuned in as we talk about the resurrection of Jesus. Celebrating Easter is one of the great highlights for Christians. Dr. Parlo and Pastor Ben get into how the resurrection has reshaped the spiritual landscape of the world. Let's join them for this conversation. Welcome, everybody, to When Fear Reigns. We are looking this week at the resurrection, really recording this in the midst of Easter season. So we just want to talk about what that means, that the tomb is empty. What are some of the attacks on that? What are the questions that people are going to be asking as we talk about Easter with so many different people? But the other thing that's going on in this world right now, it is tax season. How are your taxes looking? My there, taxes John? are my taxes are a surprise. I'm, I'm going to be one of those great citizens that... Uh, uh, let's just put it this way, supports our men and women at the state level and federal level with a large <laughs> portion of my income, having sold one of my rental houses and paying the depreciation over the last 13 years, which is troublesome, but it's something legally I have to do. And I'm gladly doing it with a somewhat semi-fake smile <laughs> to the best of my ability. We found that uh, moving, changing jobs, moving to a different state, selling a house, buying a house, and having a baby, that, that impacts your taxes quite a bit. Yeah, but you can have more babies and then you get, <laughs> you get to take that off. I'm way beyond that, son. Way beyond that. <laughs> Let's get into our topic for today, talking about the resurrection. And John, I just want to kind of start here the resurrection, let's let's understand the impact, the scope. What is the role of the resurrection for the Christian? I think you would see from the Apostle Paul and the other writers of the New Testament letters, or what are sometimes called epistles, that it's the central mark. It's the central point of our faith. It's something actually that doesn't start in the New Testament. The, the fact that we'd have a Redeemer who would rise from the dead, and also because he rose, we would rise physically from the dead. You see already in arguably the, the oldest book written in the Old Testament, which is the book of Job. And in chapter 19, Job talks about, uh, I, I, I know my Redeemer lives, and one day I'm going to see him again in my own flesh with my own eyes. So that idea of uh, a Savior whose resurrection and whose resurrection gives us uh, the sure hope the certainty of a physical resurrection is something that's always played a central point. But if you see in the New Testament, especially in the Apostle Paul's preaching in 1 Corinthians 15, in that very first part, which we'll probably talk a little about in this whole podcast, yep. he has kind of a creed that most people, both secular and religious, can trace back to within the first seven years after Jesus' death and resurrection that the Christians, the early Christians, were already using. And he just incorporates it in his first letter that we have to the Corinthians. So it's central. It's central early on for Paul, for the early Christians, that first century. It continues to be central today, right? When you say it's it's one of the things that sets Christianity apart from everything else in the, going on in this world. It, it has often been said, and I, I would certainly agree with it, that Christianity isn't so much a religion, but rather it's a movement based on a historical fact. The tomb was empty, which means uh, Jesus is the only one who ever walked on this earth who predicted his death and resurrection and three days later pulled it off in front of countless witnesses. That means whatever he says, as he is the son of God and proved that he was and uh, proved what he said is true, I'm going with. And so that does impact everything we believe. When we walk up to a funeral and we visit a family who is in the midst of pain, we shed tears with them. But we also tell them it's not goodbye forever, it's goodbye for now because the grave is empty and those who die in Jesus now spend eternity with him. And as I often say in the funerals I get to do, when we shed tears for someone who's died believing in Jesus, 
it's not our, our tears don't don't indicate that we don't trust in God. It just says we really love the person who now stands next to him, and we look forward to meeting that person mm-hmm. again. So, I mean, it, it, the empty tomb continues to impact every area of our lives and is really that sure hope, that certainty that gets us through really tough times here, including the death of a loved one or friend, untimely or, you know, you saw it coming. Yeah. The idea is that the whole scripture course, the whole dialogue of scripture is sin brought death into this world. God brought a savior into the world to take care of death for us, to conquer sin, death, and Satan. And in that way, we don't have to fear those things. It doesn't mean it doesn't hurt. We don't fear it because God, because of the resurrection, has the last say when it comes to death. And what a powerful thing to know when the crisis happens, when the trauma happens, when the big things, but it really cascades down into the smallest things, making decisions on where to work or who to marry or uh, when you should start dating again. All those questions really... If you if you you can trace them back to that empty tomb, right? The, the same God who rose from the dead said, "I'm never going to leave you. I'm never going to forsake you. My word is a lamp and a light for your path." You know, I, I I give you the Holy Spirit to straighten out your prayers when your prayers probably aren't suitable, so to speak, <laughs> which they probably never are as sinful human beings. It's the idea that the God who conquered death for us also said, "I'm not going to leave you on this earth either." Yeah, are you going to have tough times? Mm-hmm. I think of, of John sixteen thirty three. In this world, Jesus said, you're going to have trouble. You know, it's not like, you know, bad things never happen to, quote, good people. It's just that Jesus finishes by saying, in this world, you'll have trouble. But don't worry, I've overcome the world. Yeah. Yeah. And that question of evil is actually going to come up in our next podcast. We'll be talking about that. You talked earlier about the the evidence of the resurrection, that historical event that happens. Let's go there because I think a lot of people ask that question. Is that a reliable, I mean, it's so contrary to everything our experience. When you put somebody in the ground, you don't expect to see them a week later. You don't expect that you're going to have a conversation with them. Nobody has ever had that happen. This is the singular time in history. So how do you explain that? How do you, how can you say that that actually happened? And there's probably two different bodies of evidence, one internal, the biblical, but for a lot of people that Jesus followers talk to, that's not going to be evidence enough. So let's talk internal, biblical, and external. Uh, usually when we talk about the historicity of of the resurrection, uh, I simply look at four different items that I like to share with people when I have a, t- a chance. One thing that we need to understand is that the vast majority of critical scholars and historians believe in the historicity of Jesus' resurrection. Many of those people aren't believers. One of the things you have to understand when you're talking about the historical nature of the resurrection is you can't take away the fact that there were eyewitness accounts. A lot of people say, well, I'm only going to believe the people who aren't Christians. And and that's mentioned. We're going to talk about Pliny the Elder writing a letter in, uh, uh, we'll talk about it now, Pliny the Elder writing a letter in one about, about 112, 115 AD, where he talks about He's trying to get these Christians to to renounce their Christian faith, knowing that if they're really Christians, they won't. And so he tortures them, and after he tortures them two or three times, and they don't recant their faith, he then he kills them, right? And he mentions the talk that they're they're not really concerned about death because Jesus has conquered death for them. In fact, he would know, as other Caesars knew and other historians from the first century knew, the Christians had even made up a word in the Greek language that we translate cemetery, which means sleeping place. Mm-hmm. Where Christians understood death doesn't bother us. It's like taking a nap. We're going to get up one day because Jesus conquered the grave. So Pliny mentions the fact that they're not worrying about it because, well, 
they think they're going to rise from the dead because their Savior Jesus did. So there are four areas that we usually talk about, and I'll just run through them. There's the proper burial of Jesus by a member of the enemy, the, the Jewish Sanhedrin, uh, Joseph of Arimathea. You've got the empty tomb first being discovered by women. You've got multiple appearances that the Apostle Paul speaks of in 1 Corinthians 15. And then finally, you have the incredible change that occurred in the disciples yeah. after his resurrection. So let's just let's just talk for a minute about the proper burial. Most people, people like uh, John A.T. Robertson, who is not a, probably a fan of Christianity, says that the burial of Jesus is the best and earliest attestation of the historicity of uh, the resurrection. What makes him say that? Uh, just the idea that the people who would have the most to gain from finding Jesus' tomb are the people who buried him, and so everyone knew where the tomb was, mm. and yet it's empty. And in fact, uh, the Jewish Sanhedrin were told just days before, all of them voted to crucify Jesus and put him in a tomb. Well, or at least put him in the tomb after that. So we, we see the, the burial account, both internal and external, talked about, for example, in the pre-Markan Passion history, when Mark, probably the first gospel writer that records the eyewitness account of Jesus' life and ministry, he records what happened during Passion Week. Now think about that. That means that was already out there. That was already understood orally. And so he already records that. And most people believe he's probably recording that very early, maybe only 10 years mm-hmm. after Jesus' life and death and resurrection. In addition, historians have something called the criteria of embarrassment. And that is, if something is recorded in history and it's embarrassing to the people who are playing the major role in that historical account, or the peoples that are, or the nations, it's it's likely true because generally you don't record. Hey, I got you know we went in we went in a battle with this group and we just got our butts kicked. That's I, why I don't know if you've read social media though. Yeah, lately. Well, yeah, yeah. But <laughs> you look at different. the Egyptians; they don't talk a lot yeah. about all of their defeats, right? Yeah. They talk about and the Greeks too. But but that's the idea. It's the criteria of embarrassment. And so it'd be extremely embarrassing to the Jewish leaders who hated Jesus and cried for his blood to, you know, put him in a tomb of one of their own guys if it didn't happen. Mm-hmm. And we have historical record in the Gospels that it did. And in fact, other uh, historians, I believe, uh, outside the, the biblical history, uh, talk about how he was buried in a, a rich man's tomb, mm-hmm. a member of the Sanhedrin. So that's one. Second one is the empty tomb. This is the one I like to talk a lot about. Because according to even Josephus and the others, the gospel accounts tell us that women were the ones that found the tomb empty. Now, one of the things that's interesting about that is is scholars, again, talk about the criterion of embarrassment. This is embarrassing to the disciples, who would think would be the central focus, because the disciples aren't the first ones at the tomb. You know, there's no one at the outside of the tomb going, 10, 9, (laughs) 8, waiting for Jesus to pop out. That wasn't going to happen. They're huddled away, afraid, bewildered, not really trusting in Jesus as at least a resurrected Savior. And yet, women have to run to them and convince them, come and check for yourself. Well, in Jesus' day... In Jewish culture, women were considered much lower than men. In fact, the historian Josephus tells us that they couldn't really give testimony in a court of law. They weren't considered oh, reliable because of, of their sex. Mm-hmm. And so this embarrassment to say the first people who report and discover an empty tomb are women, if it wasn't true, believe me, they wouldn't have written that down. Plus, this idea that the disciples are embarrassed and hiding away, a lot of people believe, well, the whole resurrection account 
came into being years down. And, and so the disciples made themselves look like legends. Mm. Well, if that's the case, they're not going to start by making themselves look like buffoons who were embarrassed about their lack of faith or should have been embarrassed about their lack of faith. You also have the fact that these are just two. If you look at the different gospel accounts, we have at least six reports of Jesus' empty tomb. Historians, critical thinking historians today, think they've hit pay dirt when they've got two of them. Mm -hmm. Here we have at least six. We can move on to the multiple appearances. If, if, if you have your Bible, take a look at 1 Corinthians chapter 15, the first part. Right there, I'm going to read this for you. You have a section where it was obviously something that the Christians used as a formula of belief or a criteria of belief in the resurrected Jesus or something they may have recited in their services. It says this, he says this, verse three, for what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance that Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day, according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Peter, sometimes it's Cephas, same thing, and then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 brothers at the same time, most of whom, he says, at the time of this writing, are still living. So if you don't believe me, go ask them. They saw the resurrected Savior, though some have fallen asleep, a euphemism, of course, uh, for for death with Christians. So let me just understand that what you're saying here, with the mention of those names in 1 Corinthians, you're, what you're saying is, if this were a court of law, he's providing the witnesses. Like, people can go and interview them. This is well known. Go talk to those guys. If you don't believe me, don't take my word for it, kind of a reading rainbow thing. Go talk to those guys. <laughs> Right? Is that, that, is that that's, that's exactly what he's doing. Uh, he's doing something very similar to that Peter did at Pentecost as he's giving his first sermon to Jews who do the Old Testament. So we talk about uh, the Old Testament prophecies uh, of a Savior and how Jesus fulfilled that. And he's probably giving that about two football fields away from the tomb everyone knew was Joseph of Arimathea's that was empty on that first Easter morning. So he's saying, listen, you don't believe me? You guys know the Old Testament scriptures. They, Jesus matches and fulfills all of that, and you don't believe me? Go look for his body. You still can't find it. Mm-hmm. You know, you still can't find it. It's in the tomb. So go ahead and try. It's not there. Uh, it, it's interesting, too, If we in, in Matthew 28, where it talks about what was the very first response of Jesus' enemies. Not, here's the body. Mm-hmm. See, he's still dead. No. Yeah, it's cover up. They do the lie that proves the resurrection. Yeah. They say, oh, someone must have stole his body. These frightened disciples who weren't at the tomb, were huddled in a room, they're going to first overcome all of these soldiers at a at a tomb, guarding a tomb. They're going to roll away at probably a two-ton stone. Then they're going to hide the body. If that's the case, why are they huddled away in a room? And if that's the case, use all of your soldiers, both Roman and the Jewish authority, find the body, put it on display, you've now crushed Christianity. Yeah. But instead of them doing that, because they knew the tomb was empty, they they give you the lie that proves the resurrection. Now, later, as Paul is recounting all of these things, he even says at the very end of Acts 15, that little section at verse 8, then he appeared to all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared also to me as to one abnormally born, talking about his spiritual, where God literally knocked him off his high donkey (laughs) on Acts chapter 9. So I'd go to all of those. The fourth one I would encourage you to take a look at is just the fact that the disciples change. Mm-hmm. They change from men who are following Jesus before his crucifixion, not really putting together the pieces, and I can't really blame them because I it's easy for me to read the New Testament and go, how could you guys not believe? And <laughs> but you're I, living in the middle of it. But you're living in the middle yeah. of it. And yeah. yeah, they saw miracles, but people in the Old Testament saw miracles too and still didn't believe. So, I, you know, I'm not going to blame them too much. 
then Jesus dies and they all run away. And then Jesus is risen again. And what happens is they change. Now these simple men have incredible courage. At least five, as we know, at least five, perhaps all of them are ultimately martyred for the faith. The fact that they and then their followers after them, their first disciples and those that followed them, were willing to die for the faith, as I referenced before with Pliny the Younger's letter around 112 AD, tells us that the resurrection was impactful and that it wasn't just something that maybe happened. It was what they were basing their very lives on. A resurrected Savior who had lived and died for them had conquered death. Therefore, they didn't fear what people who didn't believe in Jesus could do to their bodies because Jesus had could, uh, conquered everything for their souls. Yeah. I, I always find that helpful to think of what is the alternative. Let's say, just for a moment, the resurrection didn't happen. Jesus was still in the tomb. The disciples who step out in Acts 2 and, you know, thousands come to faith. They give this, Peter gives this incredible sermon pointing to Jesus, his death, his resurrection. What do they have to gain if there's all kinds of societal, cultural, political pressure against him? It's going to cost them their lives, many of them, like you said. Why stick to it? Why Why do thousands join it? Why does it sweep the Western world? And as far as we can tell, much of the Eastern world, even within that first century, if none of it's true, if it's all a lie, they're not gaining anything from it. They're not gaining money. They're not gaining powder. They're not gaining notoriety. They're giving up their lives. Yeah. But they, they give up literally everything because they know through Christ they've gained right. everything. I, I just always find it when I read extra biblical literature, especially those that might be antagonistic toward Christianity and looking for some loophole to disavow the resurrection, that the vast majority, if not all that I've read of New Testament scholars, both secular and religious, including Jewish, now believe in the historicity of the resurrection. And that kind of blows me away because just as you said, if it is really true, then it does change your worldview, your moral worldview, yeah. your metaphysical yeah. worldview, your uh, the landscape of your daily life. Mm-hmm. Let's go to some of those attacks, some of those objections throughout history. Uh, John, can you just walk us through some of the ones that you've seen have the most influence or stick around the longest? What are what are the things that people try to use to undermine the reality of yeah. the Easter resurrection? Through the years, people have had a, a number of different explanations why Jesus really didn't rise from the dead. And I'm sure our listeners probably know of some of them. One is the swoon theory. Mm -hmm. Jesus really wasn't dead when they took him off the cross. And if you do a little research on your own, you'll find out that if a Roman soldier took a crucified victim off the cross and he wasn't dead, you were the next guy on the cross and they made sure you were dead. And of course, they would break your legs to make you die faster, actually asphyxiate. But in Jesus' case, they they thrust a spear in his side, uh, cutting up the pericardium the sack around the heart and blood and water came out an indication that he was physically dead. Mm-hmm. Certainly his his followers who put him in the tomb and hastily wrapped him would have known, yeah, he, he's all right, but he, let's say he was in a coma. I don't, you know, let's say that. Then they put a two-tone or two-ton stone in front of him and they- It's pitch black. <laughs> it's pitch black. He he's in seen- there. He's wrapped up, you know, hands and feet are wrapped up. So he's going to resurrect in the cool air of the cave. Then with pierced hands and feet, going to get up, move the stone. Slip you know, past the guards. Slip past the guards. <laughs> you know, I, I, you know. Maybe there was a back door that yeah, you knew about. Maybe that too. Ahead of time. Right. Or then the other disciples stealing the body. We've already talked about the probability of that as nil because they were frightened and all the religious leaders had to do and the enemies was just produce the body itself. Others say, uh, 
you know, Jesus, somehow it was just a figment of their imagination that Jesus rose from the dead. And, and yet that doesn't account for all of the eyewitness accounts. And when Jesus meets the disciples, he says, please touch me. I'm not some ghost. Mm-hmm. So those are just some of, of probably the most important ones or the most uh, popular ones today you'll see on social media. And I think those are really, those are really academic arguments. But I'd like to spend a couple minutes just talking about maybe some of the cultural ones. There's two that I hear. I'd like to start with the first one. Really the idea, the attack of commercialism. Easter Sunday is now more about the jelly beans. It's about the Easter bunny. It's about brunch and family. And it almost has become the resurrection, the greatest event in all of history, kind of gets put on the back burner. Yeah, it's when I first started ministry years ago, it was Christmas and Easter, two big events in the church year. Now Easter has become the big vacation day where yeah, you're right. Yeah. You vacation with fa- friends and family. You have brunch. You know, you've got, it's very commercialized and you see that with Christmas too. Yeah. So I mean, as, as I don't have anything wrong with like chocolate bunnies and solid chocolate bunnies that congregation members can give to their pastor if they really like him. I really <laughs> like all of those. I like the Cadbury eggs too because I think that really says a lot about, you know, you, you care about your pastors and oh, guys, the staff members. <laughs> this is coming too. out after Easter. Yeah, so it's yeah. already. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, it's never too late. Discount. You get those Easter sales. <laughs> yeah. Absolutely. But I, I think, yeah, you got to be really careful with that, that people forget about what it's really all about. And yeah, that's a danger. Because we are consumers by nature. The other one is, and I'm sure you know about this, is people say, well, uh, the Christians are just using an old belief, uh, the pagan fertility god, where, you know, it's chicks, eggs, bunnies are all symbols of fertility, which is true. Mm -hmm. They are. I don't think they're such bad things because you can also use them to explain an egg is the newness of life yep. Yep. that we have in Jesus because just as a chick comes out of the egg, I taught my sons, so Christ came out of the cave. I know that analogy limps because every analogy <laughs> does. But but those are those are the things. Probably the one that you brought up first, the whole commercialism. I, again, I have nothing wrong with Easter eggs and all of that. If people understand what Christians believe about that and what that emphasizes for us, I think that's great. I think sometimes as Jesus followers, we sometimes major in the minors and people say, well, if you're really a, a Jesus follower, you're not going to do the whole Easter thing. Well, that's not true. Yeah. Just, you know, use it as a teaching moment. But it's important to understand that the academic, as you talked about, more and more of the academics are lining up saying we can't disprove the resurrection. The next tactic then becomes to distract from, to to minimize that historical event. And I think it's really important for Jesus followers to it's not as though you have to abstain from the jelly bellies and the, the Easter eggs, whatever. The the, so, the solid bunnies are really good. And the yeah. solid the solid bunnies. But don't allow yourself to be distracted. What's What are we celebrating on Easter Sunday? Yeah. That trumps everything else. It is not about the, the nice hats and the new suit. It's Jesus broke the bonds of death. He went into hell. He went into death. And then he walked back out of his own power. And his empty tomb is God the Father's stamp of approval. A sin has been made for, the devil has been conquered, and uh, death death is nothing more now than Satan's dead man's bluff for Jesus followers. So that's, you know, something to celebrate, whether it's with an egg or brunch or just at home, certainly coming to worship that morning as a family. The resurrection, we've talked about this a little bit, has really played a, really does play a central role in the Jesus followers' worldview and their understanding of eternity and their perspective. Let's talk a little bit about 
what role it plays as you talk to somebody who doesn't follow Jesus. We've talked in our time together and we're planning you know, conversations about Old Testament laws, about creation and evolution, about the problem of evil. But I think the resurrection plays a unique role and almost the, it has to be the beginning. Would you agree with that or what, what would you say on that? Well, sure. I mean, at, at several points in his ministry, Jesus points out, listen, if you can't believe the words I'm saying to you, on one occasion I'm thinking when he's, I believe it's in the Gospel of John, when he's talking about, hey, I and the Father, we're one. How can you say, show us the Father? I've been with you for so long. And if you can't believe these words I'm telling you right now, I, you know, I'm telling you I, the Father and I are the same. We're one and the same. At least look at the evidence I've given you, my miracles. And certainly the greatest one is the resurrection. And so once you understand that Christ has conquered the grave, then whatever he says is true. Yeah. And so you go back and you say, well, you know, I have a hard time believing in a flood mm-hmm. of the whole world. Well, I get it. I do. But Jesus believed in a real Noah mm-hmm. and a real flood. Well, I have a hard time believing in the creation account. I get it. Jesus did. Talks about it in Matthew chapter 19. I have a hard time with uh, this idea of of, uh, of an angry God or a God that sometimes wanted his people Israel, through whom he'd bring the Savior, to take on another culture like the Canaanites and, and destroy them uh, as really divine judgment. But all the things you see that Jesus talks about in the New Testament tell us the things we struggle with in the Old Testament are believable because he did. And so I always think, I use the simple phrase, listen, if Jesus believed in it, it's good for me. Because again, he's the only guy that predicted his life and death. And three days later, pulled off the resurrection physically in front of countless witnesses, most of whom called for his death. Mm-hmm. And so whatever he says, I'm going to believe. That's good enough for me. Just because I can't figure it out doesn't mean it's not true. I can't figure out my phone half the time. <laughs> doesn't mean it's wrong. And then as you go and have that conversation with somebody, uh, they bring up some of these issues, some of these questions. What do you do? Like, is it a, yeah, but, you know, they talk about, creation, evolution. Let's just take that for an example. Mm-hmm. They bring up that question and you as the Jesus follower say, yeah, but what about Jesus? Or how do you, like, how do you get that conversation steered towards that central event of the resurrection? I guess I would start with, first of all, uh, starting at common ground. And that is, I believe deep down, we all know that we're in need of something, that we're not perfect. I always kind of start on that common ground where I'm not perfect, you're not perfect, and whether we want to admit it or not, we're going to be held accountable for something. We'll we'll talk more about that in later talks. But the idea of there's this there seems to be this guilt we all feel at at some point, and there's some underlying behind the scenes objective standard by which we know we're going to be measured. And when we talk about that, we realize okay, we're all going to fall short because God isn't great on a curve, and good isn't good enough. Mm-hmm. And so you get to that point, and then you think okay. Well, then I kind of need a rescuer. Well, that rescuer better be able to conquer sin and death. And that comes right back to the resurrection yeah, where I can yeah. go right back and say, yeah, he has done that for you and me. I guess that's where I always start. And I always start with the fear of death mm-hmm. that I'll take you. Christianity isn't a blind faith. Christianity is a faith based on facts. Yes, it's faith in, in things that we can't always see. I understand that. But it's not like God hasn't left us evidence in the Old and New Testament, of the God who can do anything. The whole creation-evolution debate, I usually tell people, from everything that I see, the most plausible explanation for everything we can measure today tells me there has to be an unmade maker. Mm. So I always start with the greatest miracle, I think, was the fact that he made everything out of nothing in an instant by the power of his word. 
Then he sends his son, God in the flesh on this earth, and he conquers death. I, I'm, I'm believing in these people, and Jesus mm-hmm. believed in their creation accounts. So I, I always go back to the, the empty tomb and what it tells us about the, the Christ. Tell us about Christ, tells us about ourselves, because, uh, I mean, go into Romans, and it talks about we were made one with him in his death through our baptism, so that his resurrection becomes our resurrection. Absolutely. Man, oh man, Great does that point. just change Great point. everything for me, because it's not just a historical event, it's my future. That that empty tomb proves that my tomb also will be empty. Yep, absolutely. And that the emptiness you f- f- feel right now for those that have died yeah. is only temporary. What do you see, John, as the, some of the dangers that Christians face today uh, when it comes to Easter? What are what are some of the challenges that you see? I, I think about Easter is a day, but really Easter is all year. It's something we're celebrating all year. So what what are the challenges or what are the obstacles from living that Easter reality day after day after day, year round? It gives us hope. I would think every morning, you know, on Easter, everyone's fired up and they're yeah. singing loudly and might be a hymn or a praise song or a mix of two or three. And they're just shouting hallelujahs. And yet suddenly the emotion of that day subsides. And suddenly I get worn down by the daily grind and relationships, still comes, yeah, right? relationships fail and and I got bills to pay and obviously taxes to pay. And, you know, and you don't realize, okay, those are all things on this earth and you got to face that and there's going to be good and bad. But ultimately, my future has been secured because of that one day we go out to brunch as a family. And so it's got to play a bigger role each and every day. And I think it's a reminder. Certainly as pastors, we remind our people of that resurrection power, the fact that we have a Savior who died for us. That was important and rose from the dead, showing us sin has been paid for, death has been conquered, and the devil, again, has been defeated. So, yeah, I think that that's really, that's really our sure hope. When life gets you down, you realize that your life here, and especially your life after, has been taken care of because of an empty tomb. And that's something to celebrate every day. And, yeah, we need to remind one another of that. Yeah, encourage each other in that. Because resurrection, Jesus' resurrection, gives you the perspective of eternity. Now, Life eternal is unlocked for me. I'm, that's mine. It's been given to me. So does that deadline that's coming up that I'm stressing about, does that really matter in the scope of eternity? Does uh, the spouse, me being right with my spouse and my spouse being wrong, how does that fit into eternity? Because this life, however long it is, is not the end. Yeah, this isn't our home, right? We're waiting to go back home. I like what how Revelation uh, 21 and 22 point out that God reunites his family. That was really torn from him in Genesis three with the fall into sin, and then will never be never be separated again. So it's hard to keep that perspective, though. I get it, yeah. and I'm supposed to I'm supposed to tell other people to keep the perspective, and sometimes I certainly we're still lose struggling it. with it. Right? Yeah, we're yeah. still struggling with it. Absolutely. I think of you know you're talking about he's going to come back. He's going to come back once more. You, you think of Paul's words in First Thessalonians chapter five. I think it's verse eighteen where he says, "Listen, don't worry." Because I want to, I want you to encourage one another with the fact that Jesus will come back one day. And then we'll be caught up with all those that have gone to heaven before us mm-hmm. in the air with Jesus. The angel's going to catch us up there, rapture us up is the Latin word, I guess, and uh, go ahead and be with the Lord forever. And then he says this in verse eighteen: Make sure you encourage one another in the meanwhile yeah. with these words. So, and that all pivots off the resurrection. Yeah, all pivots off the resurrection. Well, listeners, thanks for tuning in today. Sure appreciate you joining us for this conversation. I hope that our talk about Easter will encourage you, continue to build you up as you come off that kind of mountaintop experience. Monday has hit and 
everything else, and now you're back to uh, reality. May this keep building you up. I really, we pray for that future for you. And I hope that our time together today, our conversation has made room in your life for fear to reign. We're happy you listened to this episode of When Fear Reigns. The resurrection is central to the entire Christian faith and experience. It's the foundation upon which the answers to every other question are formed, including the problem of evil. That will be our topic for our next episode. Make sure you tune in. In the meantime, if you've enjoyed this episode, be sure to share, like, and comment on this episode. That helps us get this content to as many people as possible. Thank you.